Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So as you know, my podcast is mostly short form. I bring things to street level, half documentation, and by documentation, me sitting on a toilet talking into my phone. And then the other half, uh, some science, some psychobabble, things I learned in therapy school, tips, tools, mindset, etc. But now I'm introducing what I call the Angry Therapist Presents series. And these series are uh, from other experts, people that I admire and learn have learned from, um, doing what they do best, which is going to be more long form. So if I'm in a shark glass, series is in a wine glass. And today, I want to present to you friend and trauma expert, Dr. MC McDonald. She's dedicated her life to trauma. And she has a new book called Unbroken. You should go pick it up. This is the trauma tapes. And these are real stories as she dissects the trauma through her lens She's a university teacher, she's a coach, she's an author, she's got so much to offer. You're going to get so much out of the next eight episodes, and we're going to release these once a week. Enjoy the trauma tapes. Want to get into the letter? Yeah, yeah. Our letter um, is not signed this week, so I'll just jump right in. Okay. Uh, Dear Trauma Tapes, I set an email up just to send you this letter, so I hope you are able to get to it someday. Okay, so backstory is not that important, so I'll run it quick. I was an angry, violent kid, and then an angry, violent teen, and then an angry and drunk and violent adult. I had reasons, but they are not important because I don't want it to seem like I'm giving excuses. I am sober now and sticking to the program. I've done AA and NA and anger management and parenting classes too. All my kids, except my oldest, let me in their lives, and I cherish that. My life is good and clean, finally, but I have ghosts. I wake up almost every night with nightmares, but these aren't the kind that normal people get. I sometimes have nightmares about people chasing me and whatnot, but mostly it's what I did. The things I did and the looks on people's faces while I did them keeps me awake pacing most nights. I'm not afraid I'll do it again or anything like that because I am a different person altogether now. I don't even get angry most times, and when I do, I know what to do. I like to think I'm good with God because I am truly blessed for a second and third and ninth chance here, but I just can't shake all the pain I caused, and to people who loved me too. I caused trauma on many different people in my life, but is it possible that I gave it to myself too? Is there anything that can be done about that? Or is this just what I have to deal with as a consequence? Oh, that makes me want to cry. I know. What are your initial thoughts before we jump in? I'm kind of fascinated by this and I'm fascinated by the um, self-awareness and how the letter writer is really concerned about their impact in the world and the, the wake of some of the decisions that they made along the way. And um, it also makes me sad because it sounds like they're unable to forgive themselves mm-hmm. for some of that. But I'm, I'm, I think it's a great question. You know, it's, 
not always about what you do to other people. It's how that impacts you ultimately. Or it's not only about, it's not only about what I think maybe you meant like what other people do to you, but what you've done to other people. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Nobody deserves PTSD, right? Like there is not a, I don't believe in a, in a universe structure in which this is some sort of karmic balance. Like nobody deserves that. It's torture. Yeah. You know? Um, so I just, I want to say that to just to begin with. Um, first of all, okay. So this is totally a thing. Um, the, I was looking up what it's, there's some, as with everything, there's some arguments about the language. So I wanted to make sure I got it right. It used to always be referred to as perpetrator trauma, but now, um, it sometimes is called participation induced traumatic stress or pits with the idea that perpetrator is sometimes too heavy a word. Um, Okay. So that you participated in violence, right? So it is absolutely a thing and it's been well studied with gang members, with um, combat veterans, with um, police officers. There are people who have to do things, not, I shouldn't put it that way. There are people who do things to other people that leave them traumatized, that are violent. It is traumatic to do violence. And I think that we need to talk about, I'm really glad and I, and thank you to the letter writer for, for writing in. It sounds like this took a lot of courage and they had to kind of create an email address because we were afraid, you know, they were afraid to find out uh, that we would find out who they were, you know, or judge them in some way. There's a lot of shame there. So I, it's really an important issue. So thank you for coming forward. The thing that I always think of first, um, and I've worked with all of these populations is the Brian Stevenson quote. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Oh, wow. Which I think is, um, he's someone that, that works in the field. He wrote a book called just mercy, a story of justice and redemption. It's amazing. And I just, I don't know. Have you heard that quote before? No, I love it. It's important, right? We need to give ourselves a break, especially when we've done the work of figuring out what was going on. It sounds like this letter writer doesn't give us a lot of details, which is totally fine. Um, but it sounds like they've done a lot of work in figuring out what was going on, why they were angry, um, what led to that behavior. You know, that's that's important. When I've worked with previously incarcerated folks, um, one of the main things that they struggle with is they get out of prison and realize they're still in prison in their brain, in their mind, because they are they don't know what to do with that kind of guilt. Yeah. And it's a heavy, heavy thing, you know? Yeah. What are you thinking? You know, you hear about programs like AA and how, you know, one of the steps is making amends and we don't know the degree of the offenses here, but um, I think we all assume that that's enough to, Mm -hmm. to apologize or to be accountable. Mm -hmm. And obviously in this case, you know, if we don't know whether or not that has been done, but it's not always a safe assumption that that's enough. Serve the time to apologize to the person that you hurt, to be accountable, um, that there are still, in spite of all those things, long-term effects. Absolutely. And they, I mean, it can really be severe. There are um, people who fought in Vietnam and still talk about, okay, so really quickly, just the, the Vietnam example, I think is really interesting because one of the, the military tactics in getting people ready to fight in Vietnam was to really severely dehumanize the Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. 
and talk about them as being subhuman and all these things. The reason that the military was kind of interested in doing that is because it makes it easier to commit kind of hand-to-hand, face-to-face violence um, if you don't view the other person as actually fully human. And there have been a number of studies and some beautiful work. And there's a documentary that used to be on YouTube where it, it is these veterans, you know, this many years later, still dealing with the trauma of having had done these things that we would in other contexts label atrocious, you know? Yeah. And they are haunted and they have nightmares and they have different kinds of dream themes than people who have PTSD. Sometimes the dream um, theme is that the tables get turned and that you are the person who is, is having the violence done to you. And it's this idea that on some level you think you are, you deserve that because that's what you kind of served out in the world. But this idea that we, there's like dehumanization at the center of this that then gets internalized and we dehumanize ourselves, which then makes it impossible to atone. We can, as you pointed out a minute ago, you can go to the other person and you can apologize to the kids. It sounds like he's apologized to kids in his life and other people, right? But if you can't atone within yourself, then you will beat yourself up about it in your unconscious for the rest of your life. Right. That's a heavy private battle you're fighting every day. Right. And it's exhausting. There was this, um, I also think that some of the things about like our societal understanding and the way that we cut things is really at play here in a way that's really corrosive. So I'm going to tell a story that's like a little bit graphic. So if you're super squeamish, just FYI. But there was this case study I got really fixated on a long time ago where there was a veteran who was in um, the case study was by Russell Carr, who's the head of behavioral health at Walter Reed Hospital. And he talked about a veteran who came in with PTSD and he they couldn't really figure out the source. They couldn't treat it. So he had all these traumatic things happen over the course of his deployments and um, they couldn't pinpoint what was going on. So they would go through this brutal process of prolonged exposure therapy, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, where you go through and really de- in depth into your memory and relive and relive and relive in order to sort of desensitize yourself. Um, so he was going going through all of these things and nothing was getting better. So they weren't finding the source. And finally, after a couple of months, he admitted to Russell Carr that there was something that he wasn't telling anyone. And it was that he was, he was in a tank going into a, a town in Afghanistan and they clear out the town when they, when they do that. Right. So they don't end up having to deal with um, civilians and they don't, civilians don't get in the way. One of the tactics in other places then is to sometimes have someone who looks like a civilian who's actually carrying a bomb. So you'll have a man dressed as a woman carrying what looks like a baby and it's a, it's a suicide bomber. And so the only response then is that you have to treat every, once you've appropriately cleared out the town, you have to treat any person that you cross as a potential enemy combatant. Mm -hmm. And so they were driving this tank into this country, into this town, and um, there was a car coming back their way and they were yelling at the car, stop, we've told you to do this. The car wasn't listening. They kept coming toward them. They kept approaching. The people in the tank have no idea what's in this car. They have no idea what's going on or what they're about to. And so they say, you know, we're going to have to shoot you and the car keeps coming. So they shoot the car and it turns out it was civilian and, um, they didn't understand what was going on and they were frantic. And the guy, this is the gruesome part, uh, kind of rolls out of the car and he's burning in the street. Okay. 
And the, the person in the case study smelled the burning flesh and got hungry. He felt hunger. And so he had been through all of, and so he kind of breaks down in in Carr's office and and he's like, I'm a monster. Like, how can I not be a monster? Right. And Russell Carr is like, you're a human and you smelled meat. Like it's not your, your, the part of your brain that is responsible for recognizing stimulus like that isn't going to differentiate between different kinds of animal meat. It's flesh. It's burning. It's what, that's what it smells like. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you are shaming yourself for this very natural human response and it's killing you, you know? And, but the question at the center of his, like his struggle was, am I a monster? I must be a monster. And I think like that belief is possible because we divide the world into good and bad people. And instead of trying to understand why people do things, why is a kid violent? Why is a teenager violent? Why is an adult drunk and violent, right? We don't ask those questions. We say, you're a bad person and write you off, right? And so then the person who's done those things then has to grapple with the fact that to society, they have been a bad or evil person. And how can you reconcile that with your own understanding of what's going on, you know? That is, it's super interesting that that is the part that he fixated on. I know, I know. That it's almost as if he had to construct that, and I'm not suggesting that he did, but construct that part of the story because all the other things that happened up to that were protocol. Yeah. For that situation. It was all protocol. You know what I mean? But that he can't call him, call him, think of himself as a monster. Right. And he's following protocol. Right. So he takes this one detail out of the story. Yep. And that, and that allows him to be, to name himself, I don't know, Mm -hmm. a monster. No, I think you're totally right. So everything that he had been trained to do, Mm -hmm. he can't argue with, you know, Mm -hmm. mentally. Right. Cause he's got wow. the checklist saying this is okay. And that's okay. And this is okay. And we're following the list, which is one of the reasons those checklists exist. Right. Wow. I know. And it was, it's interesting too, because I mean, he did nothing wrong. You know what I mean? Like he, he, I think that, and, and I think that like, I don't know how to say it, like how to say this in word, that construct is the thing that's like collapsing his moral construct of the world. Right he did nothing wrong and yet he feels terrible. So he has to pinpoint where he is wrong. Right. And that becomes endless shame instead of like, here's a mistake I made. Right. And how do you get out of that? And he says in the thing, like, what are you you supposed to like come home and tell your wife? Like we pretend like reintegration is this like easy process where you come home and you just like share your experiences with people who have absolutely no, you know, (laughs) context for understanding that. Yeah. I think we are asking extraordinary things of people in these situations. It is not fair to expect them to be able to pivot like that. Totally. Totally. And the, and the, we can extrapolate that to this again. We don't know a lot about the, about the letter writer's story. um, But it sounds like he's been in battle since he's he was alive, you know, he's, he's at war too, in a different way. 
you don't, you don't come out angry. Something happens, right? And you don't come out violent. I mean, there are of course, like pathological outliers of people who are, you know, but they're outliers for a reason, right? Because you don't know, most people don't come out angry, then they don't come out violent. You become that way. And so what is it that, that caused that is the, is the question I, it, cause it's the same thing, right. In a way, like that person is reintegrating into society, you know, having this, whatever he said, like first, second and fifth chance, you know, he, every time that happens, you're trying to reintegrate into a society that has told you, you are bad. Right. And you should be ashamed instead of saying, how did you get that way? Right. What happened to you? Right. Right. What, what are, what led to that vibe? Why were you angry? What did you miss and how can we make sure that you get it? It could be that he's done that work and that he, this is like the final thing that he can't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like, Oh, it makes me think of, is it Maya Angelou who said like, when you knew better, you did better. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, his circumstances he's done. It sounds like, that there's been a tremendous amount of work that's been done, you know, gone through all the programs, you know, doesn't react the same way, um, is in a different place, mm-hmm. recognizes the the triggers or the behavior when they come up and is, yeah. able, is able to adapt. Yeah. But has this one, one last thing that he's mm-hmm. torturing himself about. Yeah. I mean, there are no bad people people do bad things. I think everyone's capable of bad things in the right circumstances, you know? Right. Um, Right. And that's not to kind of like clear you of any responsibility, but that doesn't, as you said a minute ago, that doesn't sound like the issue. It sounds like you've done all the work to, um, to get to that place where you understand there's this sense of like deserving and shame. Like I deserve to feel this way. I deserve this kind of trauma. Nobody deserves this. Right. You don't deserve to have nightmares for the rest of your life over something you did and have reconciled. Right. Nobody deserves did when, that. Right. Did in a very different time and place in your life. Mm-hmm. Did when you were suffering. Again, no excuse and, and no, you know. Right. Not dismissing any accountability or responsibility, but. Right. If you can see the difference in yourself from then and now. Mm-hmm. Why can't you forgive yeah. who you were then? Yeah. And I think like, I wonder, so we have to like unpack forgiveness, which we can do in a second, but I also just want to draw like an, a, bio- a, a biological parallel. Cause this is always so revealing. I think like, you know, we've all misused alcohol and had the repercussion of having a terrible hangover for one day or three days or whatever. Mm-hmm. Nobody would say you drank so much. You deserve to be hung over and feel like that for the rest of your life. Right. So why would you have to feel the psychological pain, which by the way, is not separable from your biological life anyway. Right. (laughs) So the fact that we even draw that distinction is problematic as we always talk about, but why would you deserve to feel like that for the rest of your life? You don't deserve to feel like that. Right. You had to have come from pain to begin with in order to have been angry, whether that pain is something that you've worked through, we don't know, but um, okay. What uh, was I going to say? Was the second thing what were we were just talking about? I completely lost my train of thought. Oh, forgiveness, getting into forgiveness. Okay. So thank you. <laughs> Sorry. It's <There's> like <laughs> insanity happening outside. I don't know if you can hear the people yelling. 
I can't hear it. It's hard to like focus. Um, Okay. Forgiveness. Like that I think has become one of these like empty words, right? Like what, like you need to forgive yourself or you need to forgive somebody else. Like, okay, what does that mean? You know, like, what does it mean to forgive yourself? And I think again, as we talk about so often, it comes down to like having a compassionate story about who you are that is integrated with who you are now. Right. So one of the actual like kind of red flags in the letter is that he says, I'm a completely different person. I get what you mean. And and I'm sure that you are in the sense that you don't respond in the same way. And that is obviously really important, but you're, you're the same person. Those two people need to be integrated with compassion. And you just said it, the way you respond is different. Right. Exactly. But the, but the stimuli, the stimulus is still the same, right? The way you internalize that is still the same. You're choosing to respond differently. Exactly. Exactly. And that is the, that's where the, like, um, the triumph lies, you know, because you, you were able to work against your foundational programming and wiring and figure out new ways to respond. That's huge. Yeah. You know, so you respond differently, celebrate that. And the forgiveness part is that it's loaded. It's a loaded, it's a loaded word. It's a, it's a loaded concept. I think understanding is a better one. Like we need to have understanding. yeah. Yeah. And from a very like clear and, and almost like a research perspective and not a judgment perspective. So this happens a lot, actually, when, um, when you see people who have had affairs, often there is, of course, the trauma of the person who was betrayed, but very often mm-hmm. the person who has done the betraying is also traumatized. And if they don't come to a place in their own work, and that can happen in couples therapy or in individual therapy or in their own work, where they understand from a compassionate place why it happened, then it's likely to continue to cause problems. Not saying that they'll continue to do it again, but they won't be able to let go of their shame, even if the other person who was betrayed is able to move on. Does that make sense? Well, what traumatizes them? I mean... Because this is, this, I think, and again, we have to go back to moral injury. You know, when you're doing something like that, even if you want to do it, that you're doing something profoundly wrong. Right. And, and then having to, I always think of Cheryl Strayed tells the story of when she came in and told her husband, her first husband, that she had been having all these affairs and he like was holding a guitar and he fell to the ground, the guitar fell to the ground and he made this horrible noise. Oh. You have to, I mean, that's a kind of violence you're inflicting onto another person when you tell them or when they find out and you see that on their face, we are not immune to those kinds of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We, even if you've done the thing that's wrong, you still caused pain and seeing that register is, has an effect. You know what I mean? Well, that's what the letter writer talks about. The, The things I did and the looks on people's faces while I did them. Yeah. Okay. You don't think about the other side, but you're right. No, you don't, but, but it's, it's there. Yeah. And if we want to understand the phenomenon, whether that's physical violence or emotional violence or whatever, we have to understand that side too. Yeah. It's just as relevant, you know, and, and, and trying to understand it. Like, I just want to smash this before it even comes up as a question, trying to understand it doesn't mean that you're signing on and accepting it in the sense of like saying it's okay to do. Right. right. Esther Perel, who talks about both sides of, of, a you know, an affair situation is not trying to give, you know, get, let people off the hook 
or say or promote that people have affairs. I've heard a lot of people say that that's what she's doing. That's a gross misreading of her work. She's trying to understand it so that healing can happen because until you understand what's going on fully, healing can't happen. And if you don't let space in the room for the perpetrator, you can't integrate it, you know? Right. Yeah. You have in that case, in those cases you have, I mean, if you want to go forward or have any kind of, you know, relationship, not necessarily the same relationship with the perpetrator, you have to allow, you have to think of them as something other than a perpetrator. Oh, totally. Which is one of the things we had an episode a couple of weeks ago about like weaponizing trauma. And when you repeatedly call someone an abuser to their face, when they're trying to make this repair process, which happens often, you're now doing the violence. Right. Which again, and in certain cases, that is a necessary move. But when it's happening repeatedly in a situation where there's trying to be, where you're trying to have repair, repair is not going to happen because you're doing violence. But I think you're right with the the forgiveness tripping people up because I, I think everyone thinks, you know, that it means that you condone the behavior. Right, exactly. And then you sit down and you have, you know, cake with the person. It would laugh you know. about like how fun it was to, to perpetrate that violence, whatever it was. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's not at all. That's not at all it. So it's, it's really like sitting in a very uncomfortable place. Yeah. And understanding all of it from like a humanity perspective. Right. There's humanity under violence. Always. There's this, um, the Iceman, did you ever see that documentary? No. He was a no. serial killer. And I I think maybe in like Michigan, I can't remember what state, but he um they did a documentary on him because the psychology of serial killers and sociopaths and all that is fascinating, right? Like because they are pathological. But there's this moment that I that I like, I almost I remember like where I was when I first saw it and I almost like fell on the floor. He's this super manipulative person. He has, he shows no affect, no emotional response. And there's these people interviewing him and, and, you know, he's in prison, obviously I think he's dead now, but um, he, you know, there's this very like astute doctor in with him and, you know, asking him questions and trying to assess, you know, what's going on. And the Iceman has a moment where he breaks and it's at the very end of the documentary. And the doctor says, you know, do you have any questions for me? I've, I've assessed you and I've told you all these things. Do you have any questions for me? And the guy, his eyes flicker and he's like, yeah, what's wrong with me? Oh, and you, in that one, like instant, you can see like all of these layers, like an artichoke, like peeling back. And you see at the center of this horrible this person who's done horrible things, right? This terrible story. There is a hurt, wounded person who can't understand themselves. Yeah. And I think that's probably at the root of like all of our behavior that is inexplicable to ourselves is pain. Right. And so, and you can see that it's the doctor's like, oh shit, he's human, you know, (laughs) like he's taken a little back and then he answers really professionally, you know, here's this, here's what I see in your pathology and this mix of not feeling any fear and also not feeling any empathy leads to, you know, a really strange set of human experiences. And he does a beautiful job explaining it to him in a way that's non-judgmental, you know? God, that's complicated, right? Yeah. 
you know, I've been thinking about, I've been like ruminating on this. Did you ever hear the, the Oprah thing? Um, stop me if I talked about this on the podcast already, the Oprah, when she gets in, she gets in a fight with Stedman and she's like, she might leave. No, she talked about this like a couple of years ago. She was like, I was sitting, you know, with Stedman and we were having a conversation and they've been together for like, you know, 75 years or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. And she's like, this is the conversation that made me like, I like got up from the table and I was like, I don't know if I can be with you. Oh. And it was the question at the center of it was, do you believe the universe is working in your favor? And she said, I think she said yes. And he said no. And she was really? like, I can't be with somebody who doesn't think the universe is, is ultimately working in your favor. Like what the hell, you know? Right. What does that mean? Right. And I think like, I want to tweak that a little bit. Cause that feels vague to me, you know, like the, I don't know what the universe, some, it depends on the day. Sometimes I feel like the universe is working in my favor. Sometimes I think it doesn't exist. Like sometimes I think we're in the matrix. I don't know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but do you believe that like at the core people are inherently like capable of good. Yes. That I think is an important question. That's the important question, you know, not that hers isn't obviously, but, and I'm not saying that people are inherently good. I think we're all inherently capable of both, but I don't think we come out evil. I don't think people are inherently evil. And so when we find evil in human behavior, we have to understand why it's there. It's so terrifying though. It's so terrifying to Totally. Examine I, it. Totally. You know, to, to, and yeah, I can say that I believe people are good, but if, you know, a serial killer murdered someone that I loved, like, I don't think I could uphold that belief anymore. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I don't know. It's, we have not been in that situation. I'd like to think, I guess I get, you don't know. Right. But I'd like to think that I would still think I'd want to know what happened to that person. What made you like that? Right. And I don't know that I want to sit down with you and have that conversation, but I would wonder, you know, yeah, like what, what made you like that? Right. I think that this is, this is also like echoed a lot of the times in families where there has been a murder and um, families think that because this is the structure that we provide them, that if they, they are able to see justice as if that's not a vague term, right. <laughs> if right. they're able to see justice served then they will be okay and their world will be righted in some way. And so, and very, very often they will, and there are studies about this and research about this, people will go to, you know, witness capital punishment and then feel empty afterwards. And like, oh, right. that, that was just a person. Right. That actually didn't, you don't combat the the evil by snuffing out the one person that's perpetrating it because you're not, understanding it. It's super, super complicated. That, super. There was that um, thing about the serial killer. I told you that scared the bejesus out of me. Oh, the night stalker. No, I, um, I gotta watch that. But you know, they, they did get into a little bit of what happened to him as a child. And really? yeah. And it's, um, it's heartbreaking and, mm -hmm. it, and it's complicated and it's um, uncomfortable. And I, I don't, you know, I, I remember we had dinner with a couple afterwards and I was talking about it and I was saying, I, I don't know where to put this. Like, this is giving me nightmares. I, I don't, you know, this is evil and, and it's such a pure form that I, I don't, I, I don't know how to wrap my head around it. And the, the guy and the couple said, you know, the, these are the stuff, the things that we pray about, which is 
that's not really my MO, but I appreciated that he had, you know, a place where he could put it and, um, you know, give it up to a higher power in a way, you know, whatever that might mean for you was, um, yeah, I don't know. Well, and I think that's interestingly, that's like indicative of, we always come back to this idea of like moral injury, right? Because I'm beginning to think it's really at the center of all traumatic experience. I think we take completely for granted the moral structures that ground our world and they help assuage our daily anxiety and they help us order things and understand stuff that feels inexplicable or is very far from our own lived experience. And when something happens that shatters those structures, it is profoundly disorienting. And that is true if you are the, the, so the concept of moral injury comes from um, research about, uh, about combat soldiers because they come home and they have committed atrocities. How do they understand themselves? How do they understand the world? Because the concept of good and evil has been shattered. Nancy Sherman wrote a book called after war. That's really fantastic about this. If you want to check that out. Um, But that's the center of it, right? Like, how do you, where do I put this? I don't know. Now that I know this thing, where I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to put it and it's haunting me. So, so you create a a place to put it. You have a higher power. You have a moral structure that you then decide on or uphold or whatever, you know? Right. Anyway, we're all over the place, but I just, I think that I, I, this was a very simple letter and it's very complicated answer. And I just want you to know letter writer that you are better. I know this with my whole being, you are better. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. And you do not deserve PTSD because you did bad things. They're the three, like, just to give you practical advice, the three most effective ways to deal with this kind of like moral injury is group therapy, EMDR, which is eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing and prolonged exposure therapy which you should avoid at all costs because it is a form of torture. But the other two might be really helpful, especially group therapy. It sounds like they've been in group in AA and NA and things like that. But if you can find a group of people who have been in the same kind of situation, um, again, we don't know a lot about what that is, but if you want to email us back, I can probably get you more specific recommendations of like groups of folks who have lived through that as well, because then you'll see yourself, you'll see the thing that's so powerful in those situations is that you see that these people across the room have humanity. So you must have humanity too. Right. And you feel compassion for them and their stories in the midst of their shame. And so then you can extend that to yourself. You know what I mean? Right. And I think, um, I don't don't know. Let me ask you if, if the letter writer has been trained to react differently, have they also done the work to understand why they did the things they did? Right. Totally. And if, if you haven't, that might be worthwhile, correct? Totally. totally. Yeah. And with you might be able to forgive yourself at that point. Totally. You understood it. Right. Yeah. Cause you can okay. find compassion for yourself in that story. Yeah. Otherwise the shame just keeps, it's an endless, you know, resource. Um, can I say yes. something really quickly about prolonged exposure therapy? Yes, please do. <laughs> what were you going to say though? It's just, I, you know, it, it breaks my heart that someone who's done so much work and come so far is still mm-hmm. tortured on a daily basis. But yeah. Tell me about it. Prolonged so, exposure therapy. Prolonged exposure therapy is a methodology that was developed by Edna Foa 
that involves the idea behind it is that there are certain memories that are, they become like overly sensitive to your uh, stress response system. And so you have a fragment from that memory and then you get kind of thrown into this extreme reaction in a moment when that doesn't actually call for it. So your body perceives the memory or the fragment as threat and there is no actual threat, but your body is often running and responding as if it is. So prolonged exposure therapy is where you sit down with the therapist and you're made to go over and over and over the traumatic event with the idea that the more you do that, the less likely it is to continue to be overly sensitive. So it desensitizes your brain. It is in my vast experience deployed in a way that is violent and torturous. If you are a believer in prolonged exposure therapy, I hope you're doing it in a way that is unlike the stories that I hear from veterans and folks um, who go through it because it is hugely problematic. David Morris wrote a beautiful book that I quote all the time because he's a beautiful writer and it's a great book called um, The Evil Hour, which is his story about prolonged exposure and then also the (laughs) gaslighting when he tried to get out of prolonged exposure, which was making him suicidal. Over 50% of the people who are enrolled in prolonged exposure therapy protocols drop out. That's unheard of for a psychiatric intervention. That is, if if this hadn't gotten so much government funding previous to those numbers, that would not, it wouldn't be a validated method. And the people who do drop out, many of them actually do commit suicide. (laughs) So it is. Oh my God psychological torture. And we need to talk about that. So if you, if you buy it and you do it, I just don't agree with you. And that's, we're going to have to be okay with that. Sounds dangerous. It is. The other thing is that you, so you sit and you do this therapy session, which is the, the often, I know we've talked about it on here before, but I think it deserves it to be exposed. Um, you sit with a therapist who shoots questions at you. So if you miss something in the memory or if you're in inaccurate in some way or your stories don't match up or whatever, your therapist just shouts questions at you. You have to have your eyes closed. This is recorded. And then you go home and listen to it over and over again. Oh so there's God. not a lot of attunement, um, at least in the way that I've seen it done. I'm sure there are practitioners out there who do it in a way that's tuned, but find another method. So if someone recommends that you do that, don't. You've been warned. Yes. And I say that because it will come up if you Google. So if this letter writer goes and Googles um, perpetrator trauma, this will come up as one of the recommended therapeutic techniques. Okay. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. There's so much to say about this. It's hard to even like wrap it up, you know? There's so much to say, but there's not, there aren't answers. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, not, it's complicated. It's layered. It's yeah. There's a lot here. Totally. You don't deserve to feel this way. No. There is no such thing as bad people. I like that. Yep. Okay. Um, do you have a tiny little joy? I do. Mine is silly. None of them are silly. <laughs> I know. I always like try and like, you know, sabotage my only tiny little joy, which kind of defeats the whole purpose. <laughs> no, but that's so, like, that's so, I know we talked about this before, but that's so relevant that like we do that out loud. Cause I think people do that. Right. And it gets in the way. So if we like, I think we need to normalize that, you know what I mean? 
just enjoy the tiny little joy. Don't judge it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My, mine is that I um, have, have a yard for the first time in my oh, adult life, you know, never just because I lived in cities or lived in places that didn't have yards. I, this is my first one. And, you know, we've been here for a couple of years now and um, just the idea or, or the act of going out in the yard and sitting down and plopping yourself in the middle of it and enjoying the, you know, the spring weather and the flowers and the leaves and everything that's out there is um, something I really appreciate. I get more excited about landscaping than I ever thought I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, because you get to pick things and like, nurture them and see what happens. And it's kind of a surprise as to what pops up and what doesn't pop up. And it's just, I'm, I'm really grateful. And it's not something that I ever would have thought would be important to me, but yeah, yeah, I get a kick out of it. Yeah. That's super interesting. I love that. There's some, there's such, such like rich metaphors with like gardening and planting and like roots and growth. And I love that. Yeah. I also like how like things that you didn't think that you would appreciate all of a sudden you appreciate, you know, oh, totally. we, we all go through these phases in our lives where, you know, we think we're going to be one way forever and it's, yeah. uh, yeah, we're not, you know, yeah. it, it changes, it evolves. It's, um, it's exciting. It is exciting. And that requires like an openness on your part to continue to evolve, you know, which is, that's huge. I like it. I, I find it like amusing, like, Oh, wow. Right. Here oh. I am feeling right. differently. You know, Here I am interested in this thing. Totally. That's great. That's a good Thanks. one. Okay. Mine's Thanks. kind of funny. Um, I listened to the podcast, um, my favorite murder. I mean, sorry, this is a, my favorite murder related podcast. Um, <laughs> the murder squad with Paul Holes and Billy Jensen. Do you listen to this? I, oh, I have, I just haven't in a long time. So my Not tiny, little, my tiny little joy is that Paul Holes, who's this like kick ass, amazing detective retired now, but he was integral in, in solving the golden state killer case, which just got solved. This was that this year, 2021 last year, last year, I think. Yeah. Um, with Michelle McNamara and all these other people who had been working on that, that case for a really long time, they do this thing at the end of their podcast. That's actually kind of like tiny little joys. It's a, their weekly distraction. Cause they're talking about ongoing cold cases and like really dark stuff that is brutal. Um, and they do this day, this, this weekly distraction and Billy Jensen's very silly and he will pick like creamsicle popsicles or whatever, <laughs> or like socks with, with like, you know, Scooby-Doo on them or whatever. And Paul Holes cannot do it. Yeah. So he's always like, <laughs> he always ends up picking this like super dark thing or like some health struggle that he's dealing with or like. <laughs> one week he's like, I've had a migraine this whole, this whole time we've been recording or something, you know what I mean? He, he just, he doesn't like, he can't do it. And it's hilarious. And he like knows that and they laugh at him about it. And then he, he, every week he does it anyway. Yeah. I, I did listen to one a while ago, like pre COVID. <laughs> and I remember like <laughs> his like involved, like cutting himself with a box cutter or something. And they were like, what? Yeah. Like, and and not it. only that, but he like had torn a tendon and he needed surgery and couldn't <laughs> right. like, you're like, dude, <laughs> it is funny. Actually. It makes me laugh. So a lot of the time I'll be walking and listening to that and like laughing out loud. That's great. Yeah. I mean, not great that he's suffering, but like, it's great that they're the it's, way they handle it. Oh, totally. It's so funny. Yeah. And he's had a couple of that are just like pure good, but, but really not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of a testament to like when your brain is like 
I mean, he, he's a detective, right? Like he, so he, he, his brain is focused on negative dark stuff. It can't switch tracks easily. Right. You know? Right. That's how he's been trained. Yeah. Totally. Practicing that is a, it's important. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noel Cordo, Lumia Coach Training. And it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.